Well, as uh, if you've been with us for a few weeks, you know that we've been starting each sermon time talking about our Go West campaign. This really heats up after Easter, but we just want to put this, continue to keep this in front of you, and something that we're praying about as a church family. Hopefully by now you've all read the fact sheet that we mailed out. If for some reason you haven't done so yet, you can go to our website at uh, newlifenwa.com slash go west, and we've put some information on our website, what we're ready to share with you at this point, and uh, we'd love for you to familiarize yourself with these early stages of this campaign. And like I said, when we get to April, you're going to hear a whole lot more. It's going to get much more intense. But let me tell you, this is an exciting time if you're new to our church family to be coming in and being a part of this. God is doing something so spectacular, opening doors for us to become a multi-site ministry. And uh, that's what this Go West campaign is all about. And so we're so glad you're here. And if you're joining us online, this is your first time with us as well, man, please go to our website and read all about what's happening. There is actually a sermon on our Go West page on our website. Well, that I preached back in 2019 when we acquired the 15 acres of land out on the west side of Bella Vista. And in that sermon, I talk all about the motivation and the heart and why we're doing all this stuff. And I would encourage, if you haven't seen that, go back and familiarize yourself with that. Like I said, it's on the Go West page. And uh, it will kind of bring you up to speed with everything that's happening. But like we've done in the last few weeks, I'd just like to start with a, a time of prayer. And we as a church family need to be praying about this next step of faith that we are, are taking. And so would you join me in a word of prayer, please? God, we just thank you that we get to be counted worthy to be one of those churches that gets to be a part of something so huge and awesome. Lord, I I know that you're going to provide. I know, Lord, you're going to to continue to lead just like you have all these years leading up to this exciting moment right in front of us. So, Lord, we just humbly come before you and we, we just lay this all at your feet, Lord. It's like, this is all about you, Lord. This is all about what you're doing. Help us to walk by faith daily as we go down this journey. And Lord, as you have already provided for us so much already, we know you'll continue to see it through. So Lord, we give you praise and honor. We thank you in advance for what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, hey, we are cruising right along in our series called Grounded. And as many of you know, we are are spending time uh, with the core essential doctrines of the church, or you might say doctrine just means teaching. What are the core teachings of the Bible? Those teachings that we as a church family need to have unity on for sure. So far, we've studied uh, six topics, six topics, or five. Today's the sixth. Today's five. We've done five years. Today's the sixth. We've talked about God. What's the Bible teach about God? What the Bible teaches about sin? What the Bible teaches about Jesus? What the Bible teaches about salvation. Last week we talked about the Holy Spirit. And today we're moving into the sixth installment of this series. And what I hope has been happening. I hope that this series on Grounded has helped you connect the dots, if you will. Has helped kind of sure up your foundations. Kind of help you go, oh, now I see. I hope it's been that for you. I hope that you have become more, like I said, grounded in what you believe. And the reason why I feel so strongly that that we need to be grounded as a church is because I can say this next thing with great confidence, that there's never been a, a time in my life that the church needed to be more grounded than it is right now, ever before. We are living in a day where many Christians, or I'll broaden that a little bit, I'd say where many evangelicals are abandoning their biblical roots in search of a version of Christianity that will somehow fit into America's secular values. And I know that's hard to believe. Even sharing that with you, I'm like, man, that's tough to say because we don't want it to be that way. But I'm telling you the truth today that we are living in a time 
where people are abandoning their biblical roots in search for something, a kind of faith or Christianity that harmonizes with our American secular culture. And I know this is something I tend to talk about often. I've even preached whole series about this, that there has been this drifting that has been going on for a good long while with Christians. I would say with even whole churches, even whole denominations that have been drifting towards cultural conformity. In other words, I want a faith, I want a Christianity that harmonizes with American secular values. I want those things to go together. And I want to tell you, friends, they don't. They never will. Christianity was never designed to harmonize with secular values at all. This is not a new problem by any means, but it is a huge problem right now. In fact, cultural conformity in some shape or another, has always been a great challenge for God's people. You can go all the way back to the beginning of God's chosen people, the Israelites. Remember they were slaves in Egypt and God sent Moses. He told Pharaoh, let my people go. And, and, and Moses leads the people out of Egypt. He leads them across the Red Sea on dry ground. Remember the walls split and the Israelites went across. And, and Moses led them all the way to the base of the mountain, Mount Sinai. And, and Moses goes up on the mountain to get instructions from God. And that's where he tells them, I'm gonna be your God. You're gonna be my people. And you are to have no other gods before me. You're not to make any kind of idols at all. You're not to bow down and worship them. But what happened? They've always struggled with this. At that that very moment, Moses is up on the mountain getting these instructions for God. And what are the people of Israel doing? They're gathering up all of their gold and they're going to melt it all down to create this cow-like creature and they're going to worship it in honor of the false god Baal. Have you ever wondered why the Israelites could possibly worship a cow? I mean, have you ever thought about that? How could cow worship possibly been a thing? Well, you know, when you think about where they were coming from, Egypt, where it wasn't uncommon to worship a cow. I mean, Baal was the dominant god of that time. They were actually a very polytheistic culture they'd been exposed to for, for hundreds of years. They worship of many gods. And then the land that they were going to, the land that God was giving them, the land of Canaan, a.k.a. the promised land, uh, Baal worship was a thing there. You think about where they've been, where they're going. I tell you, if you think about their history and all that they have been through, If the Israelites were gonna get ahead in politics, if they had this feeling, I've gotta get ahead in business, if I'm gonna get ahead in life, if I'm gonna be one of the guys in the neighborhood, if I'm gonna just go with the flow and not make waves, then it wouldn't be a bad thing to worship a cow too. If everybody around you is saying that a cow can be a god and all aspects of life around all the neighboring countries seem to make that their thing, And they want to do business with you. They want to interact with you. But you are a child of the one true God living in that culture. Then I can tell you, life would sure be a whole lot easier if you made cow worship a thing. And imagine if you were one of the the true children of God and you said, I am not going to worship a cow like the rest of you. Can you imagine the social pressures on you to stand up against that? Well, they would be extremely strong. There's a reason why God told the Israelites The land that I'm sending you into, I don't want you to intermingle with those people. I don't want you to marry those people. I want you to do exactly what I'm telling you to do. I'm gonna go before you. I'm gonna drive them out. No, no, they've always had a struggle with cultural conformity. And I think fast forward now, all the way up to us today. There is still a confrontation of cultural conformity 
among Christians. The pressures there can be immense. I'll give you an example. If everybody around you is saying that a man can be a woman, then the social pressure is enormous on you to agree, yeah, I think a man can be a woman. If everybody around you is saying that it's not about how you love, but it's rather who you love, then there can be a heavy social pressure on you to conform and agree. You know, if the government is passing new legislation that attempts to normalize or standardize or equalize sinful behavior and actually threaten you with punishment if you disagree or if your business chooses not to participate or if your church chooses to speak biblical truth, I tell you, if that pressure is out there, it can be strong against you to agree. I could give you a lot of examples today, but we are living in a day where many evangelicals are abandoning their biblical roots in search of a version of Christianity that does just that. It it harmonizes with American secular values. And that's why I can say today, friends, with with a lot of confidence, there's never been a time more vital than now in my lifetime that a church needed to be grounded. And folks, it's not good enough for you to just say, I believe. You gotta know why you believe. You've got to be grounded. And that's what I hope this series has done for us. I hope that it's doing that. You're being grounded in your faith in a very biblical foundation. You're cementing your feet into that rock-solid foundation so that each and every one of us can, can stand against the increasing pressures of this cultural conformity that is confronting us right before our eyes. So a lot of our series is about that very thing right there. So today, we are moving into the next part of our series. Like I said, we talk about God and sin, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, salvation. Today, I wanna look at what does the Bible teach us about the church? What does the Bible instruct us about the church? Can I ask you a question? What is the church? If somebody were to ask you today, hey, what is the church? What would you say? And maybe some of you are thinking, well, duh, this is the church. We're sitting in it, silly. This is the church. This is what it is. Well, yes and no. Not not so much what you think the church is or what people might think the church, but really the question is, what is the church according to the Bible? What is the church according to the Bible? In fact, that's the heart of what we're getting to with all of these things we're talking about. What does the Bible say? Because that's where our foundation is. It's our source of truth, our source of authority. Now, the word that Jesus chose to describe his people or the church is a word in the Greek called ekklesia. And I would imagine that's not a new word to many of you. We've heard this word before. It literally means an assembly of people or people who have been called out. So so you really focus in, what does ekklesia mean? It means the called out ones. So the church today is composed of people who have been called out. Well, what have we been called out from? We have been called out from sin. And what have we been called to? A life of righteousness. So in one word, that is the church. We are the called out ones. Ecclesia is the same word that the apostles used to describe the church as well. They called it the called out ones. Now, Peter describes this in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Look at the screen behind me and listen to Peter's description of the church. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Friends, that is a four-part sermon series right there. You know, I can preach four sermons right on, on this verse alone. 
Now, I want you to do something today that is going to be impossible for you to do. I'm going to ask you to do the impossible. But here's what I ask you to do. I want you to try for the next few minutes to forget everything you've ever learned about the church. I know it's impossible. I couldn't do it. But if you can, try to block out everything that you've ever associated with this idea of church. I want you to block out the buildings that you've worshipped in. I want you to not think about the programs. I want you to stop thinking about some of the helps you've received or relationships you've got or the worship services or the variety or multiplicity of ministries that you've been a part of in your life connected to the church. If you can, kind of just block that out. I want you to come back to Peter's words here in his description of the church. And what does he say? You are a what? You are, well, we know it's ecclesia, the called out ones, who are a chosen people. How are we a chosen people? We are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We choose faith and all those who choose faith in Jesus Christ, they receive God's grace, become God's chosen people. We are a chosen people through the shed blood of Jesus. We are a royal priesthood. We all have a role. We all have a function that means something extremely significant in this, this group that we're in. We are a holy nation. The church is described the way holy means separate, set apart. We are the called out ones. It makes sense. A holy nation. We're God's family. We are a people who are belonging to God. So in that regard, what is the church? I think Rick Warren put some good words around this. He wrote this years ago and I still agree with it. He says this, the church is not a building, it's not an institution, it's not an organization, it's not a club, it is a family. And a lot of people say, well, I'm gonna go to church as if church is a place that you go. That's not correct. Church is not a place you go to. Church is a family you belong to. Big difference. It's more than a building, it's more than a service, it is a family that we are to belong to. Couldn't agree more. So the question is, who makes up this family? Well, going back to Jesus' words, the called out ones do. The ecclesia, that's who this is. That's what it is. And hopefully this is gonna sound very familiar. Who makes up the called out ones? They are people who have received Jesus Christ in their lives by faith. They've accepted God's gift of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. They're the ones who have repented of their sins. They are the ones who have confessed Christ as Lord, who have been baptized into Christ, and who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Quite literally, those are the called out ones. They are the ones who fill up this room today. Not the chairs that we sit on. Not these walls that we worship inside of. No, 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 no. It is the people themselves. And I want to stress something here. A building can never be the church. You know why? Because this building cannot express faith in Jesus Christ. This building cannot repent of its sins. This building cannot make a confession that Jesus is Lord. This building cannot be baptized. This building, in the sense of salvation, cannot be filled with the Holy Spirit like a person can. This building cannot be a called out one. It's because it's the people. It's God's family. They are the ones who are called out. And the reason why I'm stressing this point so much today is because it is really easy for us to pass off the definition of what the church is onto an inanimate object like a building. Do you know how easy that is to do? 
It's not that difficult for us to attach ourselves to a building and at the same time detach ourselves from the church, which is the people. And I think too often the case becomes that our concept of the church revolves around brick and mortar when actually it revolves around flesh and blood. So the description that the the Bible uses to describe the church has nothing to do with a structure. It has everything to do with people who are called out, who are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And so what that means is this, is that later today, a tornado, I mean, I wouldn't want this, but a tornado could come through here and blow our building down. A fire could start in this church today and it could burn to the ground and still the New Life Christian Church family would still exist because we are people. We are not a building. Now, I love this building. I'm grateful that God has provided it for us. There are many wonderful things that happen here, but it's the people not the building, that are the called out ones. Now, the word church in the Bible, this is important foundationally for you to understand, the word church in the Bible is used in two different ways. Um, You can use it to describe, the Bible does, to describe individual groups of Christians or local congregations, and the word church is also used to refer to the church worldwide uh, to the ends of the earth. Here's an example. In Acts chapter 5, verse 11, it says this, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Now, we know in Acts chapter 5, the church that it's referring to is still located in Jerusalem. So it's the Christians living in Jerusalem. The church has not expanded beyond there. So we know that we're talking about a specific group of people in Jerusalem. But you know, in our study of Revelation, you remember in Revelation 2 and chapter 3, there were seven letters that went out to seven different churches, to the church in Ephesus, the church in Samaria, church in Pergamum, and so forth. There were seven. They were meeting in buildings back then. Those were Christians that were living in that community. And so there's a local congregation to the Christians who live here. So the word church can apply to localized gatherings of Christians in communities or house churches were a thing back then more than anything. But then by the time you get to Acts chapter 9, you see the word church being used in another way as well. In Acts chapter 9 verse 31, listen to this. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and we're strengthened. The church had grown quite a bit. By the time we get to Acts chapter 9, it had spread out beyond Jerusalem. So these Christians who are living in fear of the Lord, encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. So this verse is not referring to necessarily a single Christian or a single church. It's talking about the church at large. So it can identify two different ways. Now, I would look at it this way, uh, how I describe it, is there are little C churches and there are big C churches. Now, I don't know if you've heard this language before. New Life Christian Church, we would call a little C church. We are a local congregation and one of thousands. But us and all these other thousands of Bible-believing, Christ-centered churches make up what we call the big C church. So we are part of the church worldwide. So you can be a part of this local church family here at New Life. And at the same time, we are connected and part of the church with our brothers and sisters across the world in China because we are part of the church or in Mexico or in Russia or anywhere else in the world. That's the big C church. We're, we're a little C church, but we make up the big C church. And that's kind of how the Bible describes it. 
Now, the very first time we come across the word church in the New Testament is when Jesus mentioned the word. We find in Matthew chapter 16, Peter looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He makes this great confession about Jesus. And Jesus responds to him by saying this in verse 18 of chapter 16. And Jesus said, and I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. You know, sometimes what we fail to recognize when Jesus said this, I'll build my church because we're so familiar with this church language that when Jesus was saying that, he was making a reference to something that did not exist yet. He was talking about something that would come in the future. And then the very next thing he says to Peter is this, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind here on earth, we bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now it's important note here as you're talking about what the Bible teaches about the church is to understand this, that sometimes the Bible refers to the church with the word church and sometimes it refers to it as the kingdom. And so this word church and this word kingdom on numerous occasions are used almost interchangeably. I'll give you an example. Colossians chapter one, verse 13 Paul says this, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Now, without breaking that thought, a few verses later, Paul says this in verse 18, and he, speaking of Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. So you have this in context, talking about the church, Jesus, Paul is talking about it can be the kingdom, it can be the church, they're, they're used simultaneously and this is important in understanding what this is all about. I would say, it's, if you think, you'll understand some of the importance when I share these next few verses with you. John the Baptist, remember him way back early in the New Testament, the precursor to Jesus? He was out baptizing people. And in Matthew chapter three, verse two, this is what he said to all the people. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Then right after that, Jesus comes onto the scene. John baptizes Jesus, and immediately Jesus goes out after he comes back from his wilderness experience, and he begins to preach. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, it says, Jesus began to preach, and what did he preach? He preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. There's this conversation about this coming kingdom, something that was off into the future that was coming. Something about Jesus was gonna bring about this kingdom. In Mark chapter nine, Jesus was talking with his disciples and, and there was a crowd also there that gathered and, and listen to what Jesus said. He said, I tell, truly I'll tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. So we understand the kingdom, the church, was to be established, obviously, in the lifetime of the apostles. Jesus is referring something that is going to come. He's talking about that which nobody understood at the time, something that was going to come after the day of Pentecost. So Jesus didn't establish the church per se like this. He gave that job to, to the disciples after he ascended into heaven. In fact, there's this language in the, in the Bible that's building towards this coming of the church. And we see this in Acts chapter one, verse six. This is just before Jesus ascends into heaven and his disciples gathered around Jesus and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? 
There's all this kingdom talk. Is this now? Is this what it is? All this you've been talking about. And Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father is set by his own authority, but you will receive power. Now this should tap into last week's sermon, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is saying, you're gonna be my witness. He's tapping in early to the very purpose for the existence of the church, to be my witnesses until the ends of the world. If you remember last week's message too, we looked at Luke chapter 24, verse 49. Jesus says, he says, hey, but stay in the city. Do you remember this? Stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Jesus is talking about this thing that's coming, this kingdom, this church that they couldn't necessarily conceptualize at this moment. And we also know that a few days later after this, the Holy Spirit came on the apostles. They were there in Jerusalem and the Spirit of God came down, divided among them. They went out and they preached and what happened? 3,000 people repented of their sins. They were baptized. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and that was the day that the church started. That was the day that this coming kingdom that Jesus was talking about became established on earth. Every reference to the kingdom up to Pentecost was talking about something that is to come. Every reference to the kingdom after Pentecost is talked about in ways of something that has already been established. So what do we learn so far? Well, the church is called the ecclesia, the called out ones. We've called, been called out from sin into a life of righteousness, the family of God. The Bible refers to church in local ways and at church in worldwide ways. And church and kingdom in many places in the New Testament are referring to the same thing. But let there be no doubt today, friends, that Jesus Christ is the head of it all. The founder of the church is Jesus Christ. And what did he tell his disciples while he was among them? He said, I will build my church. He didn't say, I'll build your church. I'm not gonna build this obscure church. No, he says, I will build my church. So Colossians 1.18 tells us it's he, Jesus, the head of the body, the church. Ephesians, if you read through Ephesians chapter five, speaks of the church as the bride of Christ, which has been saved and set apart for him because the church belongs to him. He is the head of the church. The church is oftentimes in New Testament referred to as the body of Christ, which makes sense. If Jesus is the head, the church is the body, and we are described as members of Christ's body, all under the headship of Jesus. The church also belongs to Christ because he purchased it with his own blood. Acts 20 verse 28 tells us that be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. So this church, these called out ones that Jesus talked about and prepared the way for it through the Holy Spirit filling the apostles, established it here on earth and it has been going ever since. Jesus has been at the head of the church ever since. We have a flow chart here at New Life that outlines our organization, okay? This is how all the pieces of New Life all fit together. And I'm sure you have similar organizational flow charts at your own jobs. But you know what's at the top of our flow chart? In big words, Jesus Christ. He is at the top of the flow chart. Everything else spins off from that. Why? Because he is the head of the church. But you know what else he is? 
The Bible speaks of Jesus as also being the foundation of the church. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, For no one can lay a foundation, any foundation, other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So not only is he the top, he's the bottom, and he's everything in between. And that's what we must understand here today, friends. He is the head of the church, and he is the foundation of the church. And he leads this church. Listen to this, Ephesians 1.21, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Ephesians 4.15, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. So from top to bottom, this place is about Jesus. It's all for him. He started, he is our leader. We worship him. And friends, that's why it breaks my heart when I see whole churches move away from him. Because this is all about him. It's the church. And there's really only one more question to answer in the conversation about what the Bible teaches us about the church. And it's this, what is the mission of the church? Why do we exist? We know who our leader is. We know who established it. We know he's the foundation it's built upon. But why do we do what we do? Now, the mission of the church is sprinkled throughout all the pages of the New Testament, but probably none more clearly than Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 through 20. Jesus said, therefore, go and make disciples. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. That was the last thing that Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended into heaven. Go and make disciples. That's what we're here for. And I, I look at that mission, it's really twofold. First, we are called as the church family to teach everyone concerning Christ. And that is all of our jobs. We're to help bring them into a saving faith in him and to baptize them into Christ. That is the calling that God has put on each and every one of us. Go out and make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The second part is we as the church is to continue to teach all believers, until we're all built up, we're all established in him. That is the only task of the church. It is the only reason for our existence. When Jesus told his disciples that you will be my witnesses throughout all Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The church hadn't been established yet, but that was to come. The purpose for their existence of the church and what got started on Pentecost was to be witnesses. And friends, that's our job to reach the lost, to be witnesses for Jesus Christ, and to build up and make disciples. That's, that's why we exist. It's a worldwide program, and it won't be complete as long as there is one lost person left on the earth. I can tell you that there are many great things that come from being a part of God's family, become a part of the church. I think of all the things the church gets involved with, of helping people and serving and expressions of great love and, 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 and all of those things, the relationships, the camaraderie, the support, the encouragement, the prayer, all of that is part of being a part of the church. Those are all great things. But I can tell you, all of that stems from a singular focus on reaching people for Jesus. 
everything good that happens inside the church starts with evangelism and then it trickles out from there. Now you really put some thought in that and you know I'm right. Everything good that takes place in the church starts with our single-minded focus on making disciples and everything else trickles down from there. You know, a question that, that, that hopefully you're asking and it's a question we ask and answer all the time is, why are we going west with another New Life campus? Oh, there's a lot of wonderful things that will come from that. But the only reason why we're doing it, though, is to bring more and more and more people to Christ. And I hope you understand that. Because it is the singular mission of the church, given to us by our founder, our leader, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is from top to bottom all about the purpose of the church. So friends, how are we doing in that? How are we doing making disciples? How are you doing in making disciples? You're a part of this family. You're part of God's chosen. You're a royal priesthood. You are a people belonging to God to be Christ witnesses. One verse says to be Christ ambassador. Making disciples. You've been called out from sin to righteousness to lead others to do the same thing. So I leave you with this. How are you doing with that? How are we doing with that? It is the one purpose that God will always bless. Let me pray for you. Dear God, I just thank you so much for your word that, Lord, you teach us things. Now, I pray, God, that this has helped bring some clarity into who we are. We, we can become misguided at times. Lord, we, our focus can be put on wrong things from time to time. I thank you, Lord, for this series like Grounded that takes an in-depth look at the right things and the right way to think. Lord, I just pray you continue to renew us and shape us, Lord, into your image all the time. Lord, I pray for our new life family. Lord, may each and every one of us here see ourselves as a called out one, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to you. And Lord, may we go about our daily lives in the same manner that Lord how we are understanding our purpose today may we understand it tomorrow may we live it out the next day Lord may we be all about you and your mission thank you Father and we love you in Jesus name Amen